This is one that every mother dreads, the Andrew Brayshaw story. We have an 18-year-old boy in hospital with a broken jaw, five teeth that seem to be going black, that have lost their nerve and are probably dead. This is a story about violence, about forgiveness, about history. Oh, he's such a good guy. And then this happens, so I think Melbourne is slightly torn about its relationship with Geoffrey Rush at the moment. Do you think, in a sense, you've been running away your entire life, Cher? And she said... Honey, I stuck with Sonny for 10 years. I didn't run fast enough. He was hysterical. Hysterical. I like your American accent. It's not very good, is it? I'm loving the fact that all these movies at the moment are coming out about books and bookshops and book clubs. They've become trendy again. Well, I hope so. Bookshops are the new black. Now tell us about Mamma Mia too. I'm dying to hear. Corrie, two words, see it. It is hysterical. It is brilliant. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger. I'm Corey Perkin here with my podding partner, Caroline Wilson. And, Caro, welcome to this, our 49th episode. How did it happen, Corey? Where did the time go? <laughs> so is it like a wedding next year, next week when we have our 50th? Do we celebrate our golden, or maybe it's a golden jubilee? I think we'll get Julia in. Do you think? Oh, I think she's she's back from her world tour and she can give us her artichoke soup recipe, among other things, because I've still not given that recipe from the lovely artichokes that um, Lynn Lynn Swinburne Swinburne bought in in last week. And don't forget, everyone, BCNA Field of Women is at the MCG on Sunday. That's an eight-point game, the Melbourne-Sydney game, because they're both fighting for a spot in Potentially the top four and even the top eight. It'll be a great game. And don't forget, Potties, uh, if you join the field of women, you get your pink poncho and you get to stand on the MCG turf, which is great. But look, Carol, I must say that whenever the topic of uh, this podcast comes up amongst friends or people who come into the bookshop, they always mention your mum. So I think that's a fabulous way to celebrate. We have a very full agenda today, however. Uh, We've got lots to get through. The AFL Women's Competition... So it's kind of like a case of who needs enemies when you have male footy executives, really. And also we'll be having a brief look at the Academy Award-winning actor Geoffrey Rush's defamation case, which is just going on and uh, causing more and more eyebrows to raise. A case we feel very uncomfortable about. We do feel very uncomfortable about it. And yet there has been a development. You've got a – I have a recipe for a beautiful I fillet dish and you have been to see Mamma Mia too – and I think you also have a book and you are pretty grumpy this week about a certain Hawthorne football club president. I'm grumpy. I've got a good local tip. It's all have, happening, Pods. I have a lot on my mind, Corrie. <laughs> so, and also I just want to mention that on Saturday it's National Bookshop – oh, sorry, it's now called National Love Your Bookshop Day. Uh, so we might just send a, a little bit of love that way and talk briefly about why we love bookshops. But first, housekeeping, Caro. And before you kick off, I do want to say thank you to all the great feedback we received after our episode last week with Lynn Swinburne, of course, who is uh, a superstar in all of our lives. And she is the woman who started Breast Cancer Network Australia. And um, she was talking about the, uh, as you said, the field of women next th- next Sunday. So we just want to remind potties, go onto the BCNA website uh, and also in our show notes uh, and you can log on and have a look there, what's happening and join hopefully and and rock up to the G. www.bcna.org.au. Thank you for that, Caro. Uh, I just want to say in housekeeping something that I was talking about last week um, when I was, was talking about what made me grumpy and I mentioned Donald Trump had 
uh, had an absolute lack of regard for the important meeting he had with the publisher of the New York Times. I couldn't find my notes as I was talking about that. I called the um, New York Times publisher, whose name is Arthur Greg Salzberger. I called him uh, the managing director. And in fact, I didn't want to diminish his worth in the company. He's a highly astute um, man in his late 30s who's very digitally savvy. And he's a member of the family who has owned the New York Times for more than 100 years. So he's no slouch. And I just so you're to... apologising to the editor of the publisher well, cause he might of the be New listening. York Times. He, well, Robert Thompson, our friend who is Wall Street Journal, he listens to us, Cara. So I just thought maybe we pass. But he does indeed. I heard that from his niece. But I did want to say also that um, on the weekend, President Trump uh, said that uh, once again referred to the press as the enemy of the people. And on a couple of CNN and New York Times journalists in the last two days have had death threats, which they believe is a direct result because the death threats have used those words, you are an enemy of the people. So uh, I just think that's an ongoing story. We have to watch, Caro, as journalists. What have you got? Any any apologies? Any? I don't, think I, I don't think I do have any apologies. You're well week. behaved. I've been cooking. I've been reading. I've been going to the movies. I've been getting fired up about things. But we'll start with a couple of major football topics. Obviously, we sit here shortly after Andrew Gaff, the West Coast Eagles footballer, has been suspended for eight weeks for punching Andrew Brayshaw, the 18-year-old boy from Fremantle. This is a story that has crystallised violence in football, I reckon, at a time when there's revelations about... uh, Day, day, prisoners on day release playing country football um, when families of the you know other kids playing against them don't know and there have been violent incidents. But this is one that every mother dreads, the Andrew Brayshaw story. We have an 18-year-old boy in hospital with a broken jaw, five teeth that seem to be going black, that have lost their nerve and are probably dead. Well, two were punched in backwards, weren't yep. they? So they've been unaligned. Uh, th- this is all about, um, this is a story about violence, about forgiveness, about history. Of course, Neville Bruns has come back onto the airwaves this week in a great interview with Jared Waitley, where it, it's sort of clear that he still hasn't quite got over in his mind what went on with Lee Matthews all those years ago. He's tried to talk to Lee Matthews about it. Lee Matthews doesn't want to talk to him about it and decades later still hasn't. He believes a one-year suspension and maybe um, doesn't think a red card should come in. But it's raised all those questions about should there be red cards? Why do footballers niggle each other at the start of games? Why do they ruffle heads and push players when they miss goals? It's actually widen the debate about violence and bad sportsmanship. But the most disappointing thing to me was that when Andrew Gaff, who does seem shattered and beyond shattered by what's happened to him, he's also a free agent. He might even leave West Coast this year. They're second on the ladder, a premiership chance. They've now lost their best midfielder for the finals in Andrew Gaff. He went before the tribunal and sort of tried to excuse why he did it after saying he was shattered and felt sick and he was horrified at what he'd done. And not only that, the the QC representing him, David Grace, who also was the guy who used to look after Ben Cousins, who looked after the Essendon footballers, who got Fremantle the four points when the Siren Gate thing happened down in um, Tasmania. He went for a a starting point of a three-week suspension. Now, if you're shattered and sorry... Yeah. <laughs> What's three weeks, Caro? I saw that. I saw Gaff come out of the tribunal. What struck me was again, it was a little bit like Dave Warner after the uh, Australian cricket crisis. They come out and they say, um, "I'm terribly sorry this has happened, and I feel for the uh, victim or the family, but I have had a terrible week. Uh, you have no idea what I've been going through the last forty-eight hours. Poor me, poor me. Not sure about that. 
Well, not, not sure how that 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 washes over with the no. Australian public. Do you think most of us instinctively go, "Oh, yes, it just must be shocking." We can imagine being in your shoes, where you we've all done something, you know, haven't we? In our lives, we've all done something spur of the moment that we've regretted. Not necessarily punch someone in the face, but we've all done something that we've regretted. And so, there's a, is there a sense in the Australian public? Yeah, you know what? I I understand what he's going through here. Look, he's suffering the good bloke discount, as people call it, because he's a really good bloke, Andrew Gaff, and he's never done anything like this before. But unfortunately now, he's not that bloke anymore. He's a bloke who punched someone in the face, even if he tried to get him in the chest. He still punched him. He tried to minimise the action of what he did in front of the tribunal, and his QC went for a three-week suspension. I mean, it was laughable. If you're really sorry, just put your hand up. Put your hand up. That is when people forgive. Anyway, it's a saga that will go on. It has raised so many different debates. And the other big big debate is the AFL women's situation where yet another committee has been meeting this week about AFL women's rules and what the fix is going to be for next year. We're sitting here in August, Corrie. The season will start in January or February next year. We still don't know how long it's going to be. The AFL is trying to shrink it and the women Why? are angry. Why? because they're tr- struggling to get a TV deal and they want every game to be televised. And there's a view that if every game isn't televised, it diminishes the competition. The women, some of whom are moving into state for what looks like threatens to be a six-week home and away season, are saying, why the hell are we doing this? We want our premiership to mean something. We want to play everyone at least once. There are 10 teams next year. And I just feel the AFL are losing their nerve. So do you think the women would be prepared to... Uh to forego the television exposure and inevitable marketing bonuses that come with that, to actually just focus on the competition, growing at grassroots level, and then in a couple of years you have, you know, you have uh, broadcast companies knocking on your door saying we want to do this. Well, they would be prepared, I think, to go to a situation where there's a match of the round or the early rounds are played off-Broadway and, you know, maybe in early January or mid-January and then once the Australian Open tennis is finished, then all the games are televised. But Gillan McLaughlin will not even, won't even consider a situation. He reckons if you give away TV coverage early, you might never get it back. So there's a... Demarcation lines have been drawn. This is the women have almost gone rogue against the AFL for the first time. They're all speaking out, all the players, as is the head of the Players Association, Paul Marsh. Bit of bad blood building there between head office and the players' union, and I'm very concerned. And I just wish you're very concerned. What about the future of the women's competition? Yeah, I'm I'm worried that they feel diminished. I think there's a feeling, a message out there now. I mean, as someone who's not close to it, are you getting the feeling that maybe the brand's not what it should be or the AFL don't have confidence in it? Because that's the message I'm getting. My feeling is that Gillian McLaughlin would rather it wasn't there. That's my feeling after this last, uh, you know, this last home and away round. I think he wants it there, but he's not prepared to back it and take risks and have a few bad games and, and get them be seen. I th- he definitely wants it there. He wants more and more women involved because it's a one really big, strong growth part of footy. Caro, in, in the AFL's decision-making about this new league, are they actually consulting the women to the extent that they should? Well, they've got a committee, a women's competition committee, a bit like the Vic Market. They've, they've just put together a committee of 40 people um, interested stakeholders about the redevelopment of but the Vic Market. But that's just touchy-feely to make people feel good. Too many committees. And the women's committee are feeling like they're just being told what's happening when they go and meet, which is what all the men's committees... So there's nobody in the decision-making room who's a female who is a... Well, there, well, the head of the women's football is Nicole Livingston, Nicole Stevenson, and she has been to all the clubs and suggested this shorter fixture. And they've just gone nuts. So... 
as we speak, there is no resolution. And I think the women are going to struggle to get to their nine-week season out of 10 teams. But in the meantime, Corey, we'll, we'll move to Geoffrey Rush just quickly. Now, you and I have felt so uncomfortable about this story from the word go because, of course, the Daily Telegraph wrote it, probably went a bit too early. Interestingly, the Herald Sun in Melbourne weren't writing all the stories that the Daily Telegraph in Sydney were writing. We felt that there would be well, Jeffrey Rush has spoken passionately and emotionally. I think in Melbourne there's a sense of don't shoot Bambi with Jeffrey Rush, don't you? He's one of our he, – I mean, Completely. The, take this episode aside. Prior to this, he was an untouchable. He's a great actor. He gives back to the local community. He has for 30 years to this local Melbourne ecology, which is extraordinary stage and screen. He's won an Academy Award. And he lives, a Tony, he lives in Hawthorne and an Emmy, Camberwell, yeah. all his neighbours. He fights for the local <laughs> railway station, for the Camberwell market. Oh, he's such a good guy. And then this happens. So I think Melbourne is slightly torn about its relationship with Geoffrey Rush at the moment. It's, and we shouldn't actually, Caro, really, we shouldn't make any um, decisions as a community until this court case and this defamation case has played out. But, but I think there was a feeling when the story broke that, okay, now the media has gone too far. The Me Too movement has gone too far. And yet the woman who initially spoke or allegedly made a complaint at the time that Geoffrey Rush was never told about and this was never acted upon, has agreed to come forward as a witness well, in the I, case. I, I think there's been a bit of pressure on her um, by the um, telly's lawyers to get, her, to get her in the witness box, but she has agreed to make a statement and, and, um, and go public and they're using this as a... As, um, well, this is going to surely be make or break depending on what she says. Well, you would think so. It might be a case of he he said, she said, and it might also be a case of but that's what that's not what I meant to do. I mean, if you go back to Helen Garner's The First Stone, Caro, and the um, dean of the Ormond College who was uh, alleged by two students to have touched them inappropriately. Alan Gregory. Yeah, well, let's name him. But, um, you know, and then and then the, the students felt that they weren't being heard by um, the university or the college um, board and so they inevitably took their, their complaints to the police and, as we know, criminal charges were laid, which is just such an unheard of thing in those days in the 90s. But... That you know, that, that still for me, and Helen Garner gets into this in her book in such a brilliant way. What is um, what when it's he said and she said, and what is appropriate and what is not, and what is one person's sense of what is right? You know, I can say to you, if I'm a bloke, I can say, You look gorgeous today, Caro, and you might, you know, Caro on one day might feel flattered, Caro the next day might go, Well, don't hit on me, that's not appropriate in the workplace. Sometimes it's, it's not, you know, I'm, I, I just. I'm not sure how this court case is going to pan out in the federal court. Well, there's been a lot of discomforts about it. There have been sources named when they shouldn't have been named. There's been a lot of bad behaviour, I reckon, by the Telegraph. And yet, if this woman comes forward and backs a story, who knows what's going to happen? Geoffrey Rush, he pulled out of An Ideal Husband? Was that yes, the, he did, yeah. The MTC? Oh, no, not An Ideal Husband. It was a Shakespeare play. Much Ado, anyway, yeah, whichever one, one it was. Yeah. And so he's obviously hurting and is apparently completely shattered by this. And as we say, a massive international star. I it mean, is. He's, he's won is. the it triple crown of acting. He's a massive name overseas. And this could, well, it's, it's already incredibly, incredibly damaged him. Well, if you were a theatre director, would you offer Jeffrey Rush a role or, or, a, or a film director, would you offer him a role at the moment? You know, especially when productions are, are, are happening and we know of stars who are being pulled, like the Johnny Depp this week, you know, it's announced that they're dropping his film because there are all these allegations that he was, um, you know, um, taking drugs and, and, and smashing up people, you know, punching them. 
So suddenly the producers have gone, hang on a minute, we're not going to release this film when there's so much bad blood. So yeah, everybody stands to lose a bit of money. Very, very, very messy divorce case it is. that was. Caro, just quickly on the case of, of women uh, and what we're talking about here, I'm really interested. I don't know whether you've seen this. Um, it's gone absolutely viral. Um, Marie Laguerre, who's this 22-year-old French student um, who was walking by uh, a cafe when a chap who was on the other side of the cafe, uh, an outdoor cafe, um, he whistled and called her, um, you know, a few dirty words um, and was quite leering. And so as they passed and he said this, she told him that that was inappropriate, don't say that, you know. And you can see it in this vision on YouTube because the cafe camera, the outdoor camera has captured all this. The so, old CCTV oh, it's changed everything. So they've walked past, the guy's walked past the cafe, then he comes back, says something to her and slaps, well, not just slaps her, really whacks her across the face. People in the outdoor cafe jump up, one guy gets a chair, they sort of, you know, like don't come any further. But this whole thing has gone viral and Marie Laguerre has actually launched an online anti-harassment campaign. They are, they are trying to change uh, French legislation regarding all of this. Um, but she's trying to make it a bigger – it's not just about fining the guy or whacking him in jail. It's actually about changing the you know changing men's attitudes. It's quite an interesting case. Well, I hadn't seen it until you told me to watch it and it's pretty horrifying. It and is. it's very brutal. And if something – it's amazing how one particular chilling action, a bit like Andrew Gaff really, can, can change everything. It's, it, and, and change the way people feel. And it suddenly launches an entire set of outrage against, no, we're not going to take this anymore. Have you ever interviewed Jeffrey Rush? Well, I have. Well, it's a nice segue into, um, isn't it? I've interviewed him a couple of times and um, I have found him, we were going to talk about celebrity interviews. I found him terrific. I really did. I, I enjoyed our conversations and, uh, and I am a huge fan of him, not just as an actor, but his thoughts on um, the process, um, you know, achieving artistic goals uh, on screen or, or on stage. I think he's a terrific bloke. But having said that, you know, this is appalling behaviour if this is what's really occurred. But I have had, but I would hate to be having a celebrity interview with him now, Carol, because I just wouldn't know. How, I wouldn't know where to go with that. His wife Jane Menelaws grew up in our street. That the, the Menelaws lived down the road from us, and she was a year above me at school, at a different school. But years later, um, one of my children, one of their children, was, was performing at Summer Steadford at the Camberwell Civic Centre, and I was with Mum watching. And Jane and Jeffrey were sitting in front of us and Mum and I bowed up Jane at the end of it and, you know, had a long chat about, you know, the old street and she is absolutely charming and the most wonderful actress. Well, I've told you the story, haven't I, of when um, Francesca's friend Laura was on the train, a tram going into the city and Jeffrey Rush was on the same tram and Laura... Laura thought, oh, I've only got one opportunity at this. So she crossed over the aisle and went and sat next to him and said, um, hi, Mr. Rush, I'm Laura and I'm a really big fan of your work. Would you mind if just for a couple of minutes I just asked you some questions? And he said, actually, I'd like to ask you some questions. <laughs> so he started asking Laura. They had a very nice chat. So we, we kind of a bit of a fan family. But, Caro, thinking about the whole celebrity interview thing and, you know, my beef with, with Vanity Fair, you and I have discussed Vanity Fair. You weren't such a keen keen fan of the way it was going toward the end of Graydon Carter's editorship. Sick of fanti- celebrity with those celebrity interviews. So Gushing. clearly, and clearly agents have said, yes, you can interview Reese Witherspoon, but these will be the questions that you ask and journalists silly, stupidly stuck to those. But what makes a good celebrity interview, do you reckon, and who does it really well? Well... In the case of um, Brian Dore and Tony Wright, 
two bottles of red wine. <laughs> oh, on the weekend. Wasn't that hilarious? I We were so taken by this interview, Brendan and I. I mean, Brian Dorr, I love, and he's a much more fascinating man than I realised. I mean, turns out he's a talented artist, photographer, poet, you know, actor, all the things he is, as well as being a satirist and a comedian and one half of the great John Clark partnership. But Tony Wright, you know, this thing in the age spectrum section every weekend where they, you go to lunch with someone. And I don't know about you. I don't know you. how they do it on Fairfax's really mean and tight expense well, account. But well, I always check out the bill to see how many glasses of wine they've had. Or, and usually they've had none. And, you know, you, or maybe one glass of wine. And I always think, oh, I bet you that was the journal, not the subject or whatever. Anyway... Brian Dawes' favourite restaurant is Donovan's, that beautiful restaurant down on the St Kilda seafront there. And Tony Wright, who we know well, who is... A, is pol- a political writer. <laughs> took him What's to he lunch. doing going off to interview Brian The Dawes? bill was about 360 bucks, which immediately pricked up my interest, which made me... That made me want to read the interview because I knew... You want to see if they got sloshed halfway through. Two bottles of um, some Jim Barry red that sounded absolutely fantastic and... Not only does the bottles of Jim Barry sort of haunt the interview, John Clark does too, even though there's not, he's not asked directly about John Clark and what was only very briefly about how his death affected him. Clearly it affected him terribly, but John Clark sort of haunts the interview with some of his pearls of wisdom that Brian has picked up and lived with. Turns out he's got a base in Tangiers, is that how you pronounce Mm, it? And, And he's got an exhibition coming up of photographs and pictures and artwork that he's collected from Tangiers. But not only did they rattle through two bottles of red, then they got on to the sherry. But interestingly, there was only one glass of sherry. Uh, my money's on Tony Wright. <laughs> he said that, you know, we saw in the afternoon and the day took on a rosy haze thanks to the red and the sea was raging outside. It took me back to when I first interviewed Andrew Dimitriou when he was about to become head of footy at the AFL and I went round to his house with a bottle of red because it was a nighttime interview and we had a glass each and it was a very good interview. I mean, he spoke very honestly about the death of his first wife and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Years later, he's head of the AFL. I'm in London covering the Olympics and he was over there, you know, on a junket and also on a massive holiday and I said, can we, can I interview you while you're there? And there was a lot happening in footy. So, it was in the middle of a really, really, really busy Olympic campaign. I, we met um, upstairs at Harvey Nichols, I think, in the cafe there at about four o'clock in the afternoon. It was a beautiful day and we sat down and he ordered a coffee and I said, would you rather have a drink? You know, I, I, you, you have no... The old Juno trick. You have no cycle. You have no cycle when you're covering <laughs> Olympics because you, you wake up at five, you go to sleep, you, you literally get three hours sleep a night. Yeah, you're on the piss the whole so time. So four, no, well, you're not, but you've got Shane no, Gould wins gold. Where's Caro? Oh, no, slump down there. Hiccup. No, no, Hiccup. but no, but you just, you just don't have any, like four o'clock in the afternoon, it feels like 10 o'clock at night. I'd been going for 12 hours. And it was, you know, nice to see it from any face. I wonder people like Peter McLaughlin, who used to handle the expenses at the age, have a fit when 10 age journos go off to cover the Olympics. Andrew Demetrio looked at me like I'd said, you want cyanide? He said, a drink. It's four o'clock in the afternoon. I said, oh, I was only joking. (laughs) (laughs) It must have been the early 90s. I went to the local... the local um, video shop to pick up a video on a Sunday afternoon. And there's this chap there looking at videos as well. And I thought, oh, kindergarten parent from kinder. I said, oh, hi, how are you going? He looks up very, you know, peculiarly. Oh, hello. And so how's your weekend going? Thinking, what name, 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 name. You know, Tom, Jack, Steve, what's the name, what's the name, what's the name, as you do. <laughs> and then, you know, midway through, as he's saying, oh, I'm just getting a video. because and he's still looking peculiar. And I thought, oh, no, 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 no. And it was Brian Dorr from television. 
Oh, really? Well, so then years later when I interviewed him, I had to fess up and say, look, I'm terribly sorry, but I was one of those people who thought I knew you. He said, oh, it happens all the time. You would get that too probably because you're so famous. Well, when you're sort of a D-grade, you know, celebrity, as they say, when you're not really well known, but you're on a late night TV show and it happens a lot of the footy people know you, but yeah, often people come up in a cafe and say, hi, how are you going? (laughs) But then that look on their face when you know that they realise, I don't know this person. We've all got stories like that. I think one of my favourite um, TV inter- uh, celebrity interviewers was Lynn Barber. You've given me a list to consider. I think he was absolutely Wasn't brilliant. Wasn't she great in the old the Independent on Sunday? And when I was ed- an editor at the Sunday Age, we used to we had a um, we had a con- contract with the Independent on Sunday. We could use their stuff. So I remember Bruce Guthrie, who was then deputy editor, saying, "If you use one more bloody Lynn Barber interview on your pages." <laughs> The audience is sick of it. I went, no, we're not. We love Lynn. She was great. One of my most memorable celebrity interviews is when I was on hosting 3AW Afternoons and we had Cher on. Cher will come up later in the show, by the way. She is one of my absolute favourites. I love Cher. And you also interviewed the Duchess of York, who you called the Duchess of Pork by accident, didn't no. you? No. No. <laughs> No. I was told that. I was told you called her on air, the Duchess of Port. That would have been, I don't know where you would have got that. I never did anything like that. I did interview Fergie, but no, I never called her. What a ridiculous thing to say. Um, I interviewed Cher and I remember saying to her, I'd read all this stuff about her and I thought came up with what I thought was a really, you know, um, considered in-depth question about running away. Um, I said, you know, look, you, you you finally left Sonny and you left this husband and you left this production and you talk about how you change friends every three years. Do you think in a sense you've been running away your entire life, Cher? And she said, honey, I stuck with Sonny for 10 years. I didn't run fast enough. And she was hysterical, hysterical. I like your American accent. <laughs> it's not very is, good, is it? Yeah, which is why you never hear it. Oh, What's um, your favourite? Well, uh, my favourite interviewer? Well, I'm no, not... no, no. When you interviewed, I know you interviewed Hugh Grant, and you were well, very yeah. nervous well, about well, asking the, well, him about <laughs> Divine Brown. Well, the Hugh, the Hugh Grant thing was an absolute collapse because, in the end, you know, we flown up to Sydney, and we were we were in the we were in a like that horse and hounds thing that yep. scene in Notting Hill. Yeah, I was literally like every he would go from one room to another, and that silly Sydney FM radio station kept him fifteen minutes, so we were down to twelve minutes. I mean, what do you ask someone? So, in fact, what I did was I turned the piece. I had, you know, they were holding the back page of the feature section, Caro. I had 2,000 words to write. I had 12 minutes of Hugh Grant. That's so I actually, Corey. So it's... I actually turned it a story into this whole debacle, which is interviewing Hugh Grant, you know, flying up to Sydney, having Liz Hurley whiz in and out of the room, issuing orders with three entourage behind her. Yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. Hugh Grant, you know, just looking exhausted, trying to be sincere and talk about his film in 12 minutes. Oh, it was a disaster. But the piece actually turned out okay because I wrote about the process, which is what a lot of readers don't know. So, you know, there you go. Um, look, I have to say, I, one of my favourite, I love Lynn Barber too, I have to say, and I used to love Doug Ayton in The Age, The Sunday Age. I loved oh, yeah, they were hysterical. Interviews. They were great. But I am a real fan, Caro, of... Um, well, you know, on a serious note, Barbara Walters, Babs is fabulous, and Christine Amanpour. Um, but most recently, I can't get enough of Graham Norton. 
I tape his show, and if I'm at home and I just want some comfort food, I'll put on Graham Norton's show. I think his celebrity interviews are oh, terrific. He's a, and I love it when he gets all three of them together. And, <laughs> you know, the dynamics are fascinating, a bit it's like how great. Michael Parkinson used to be, but with a twist and a lot ruder. Yeah, it is. He's really great. Caro, um, I'm hoping that on Saturday everybody who's listening, including yourself, will come and visit your local bookshop and give us all a big hug because it is Love Your Bookshop Day, which used to be known as National Bookshop Who Day. Who started this? Well, at the um, Australian Booksellers Association started it not long after the then Minister for Small Business, Nick Sherry, said that uh, this was in 2011. He was speaking in a conference and he said that he, that he believed that bookshops would only be around for five years, that nobody was buying, going into bookshops anymore and buying actual books, that everybody was doing it electronically or via Amazon. So, of course, the ABA just, you know, finally found its tiger teeth and um, booksellers around the country were just up in arms. Little booksellers like me who'd only been in business for two years went, what the bloody hell have I done if I've only got five years in this business? So anyway, they decided to, um, to invent this day. And it's actually become a real celebration. In most most potties in your local area, if you have a local bookshop, they will be doing something. I know Fairfield Books, for example, in Fairfield, they are having a day of authors coming to just meet and greet, which is really great. In the past, we've done cupcakes. One year we did, um, you know, bring your dog for a dog show. And the dog who looked like Harry McClary from Donaldson's Dairy um, won the award. That was really great. <laughs> um, this year we're just doing uh, an online offer. So anybody who comes in over the weekend, and presents this thing on their phone um, via our website and newsletter. They get 20% off whatever they buy. But everybody's doing a different thing. And I just think it's a great opportunity, even though we're, how many national days can one country have, oh, it's really? A good, I'm it's happy a good with a bookshop course. day. And I'm loving the fact that all these movies at the moment are coming out about books and bookshops and book clubs. And I, I just feel that um, they've become trendy again. Well, I hope so. Bookshops in the new black. I see Jeffrey's in <laughs> Melbourne, like my old bookshop, where I don't go anymore because I go to um, my bookshop by Corrie Perkin. Thank you. But they've got George Megalogenes in, who has written that extraordinary book about how what federal politicians can learn from the Richmond <laughs> Premiership. And now, Caro, time for BSF, and you've got a book. What is it? Corrie, America needs a hero, and we've got two of them, Barack Obama and Joe Biden. My brother Will came back from America the other day and he gave me this book. He said, this will be a great one for your podcast. It's the first of the Obama-Biden mysteries. I mean, you must know about this, but I had no idea he'd well, started I, off this I, I don't genre. Know, yeah, I don't know as much as as, um, as you might think I do because it hasn't been sold heavily into Australia, although I do have 10 copies coming. When you mentioned this yesterday, I did check our stock list, so it's arriving. It's called Hope Never Dies. Now, Joe Biden, the former vice president of the USA, is living back at home post being the vice president in Wilmington, feeling pretty miserable. Barack Obama is basically, you know, going skydiving with Brad Cooper. He's Mr. Celebrity. He's water skiing. He's in helicopters. He's appearing on talk shows. He will actually. He's now actually working very hard for the midterms in November, Caro. Well, this is the, what's happening in the book. He's telling everyone that he still catches up with his old buddy Joe and they play golf together, which is complete crap. They, Joe hasn't heard from him for months, years. He's feeling very tragic. Barack Obama comes back into Joe Biden's life after the mysterious this death. This is fiction. Yes. This is fiction. Well, you have to stress that. Well, it's a, it's <laughs> it's a what, novel. It's the first of the Obama-Biden mysteries, <laughs> which have been written by Andrew Schaefer, and it's called Hope Never Dies, and these two become crime fighters. 
It's hysterical. It's sort of written well, like in the, Batman and Robin. It's sort of written in the um, genre. It, 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 it mentions guys like Raymond Chandler. I mean, it's no Raymond Chandler, trust me. But it's very funny. It's very lots of quips, lots of one-liners. So, what's the mystery they're trying to solve? There's a death of an Amtrak um, con- train conductor, a, a, a guy, and, and he, this is a guy who was very close to Joe Biden all the years he caught the train into Washington from Wilmington, and it's a mysterious death on the train track. This lovely older man has been found with a bag full of heroin, and this guy didn't even drink. And he's got on him, this all happens in the first chapter, a map with a X marks, marks, marks the spot of Joe Biden's address. So the Secret Service get involved. They keep it quiet. They're worried that he was trying to kill Joe Biden. Joe Biden knows this can't be true. The man's got a wife dying in a nursing home, a very sick wife. He's got a daughter who's been left with nothing. And basically, Barack comes into his life with this hysterical and grumpy Secret Service guy because Joe Biden doesn't have Secret Service anymore because he was only the vice president. And his wife's sick of him and she's going running and in book clubs and busy. And he's basically getting fat and tragic. And like they, many retirees. And they get together. Look, it is it, – you, you can't put it down. It's okay. great. So, it's great. So Hope it, Never Dies. Hope Never Dies. By Andrew Schaeffer. And it will be in my bookshop, which happens to be my bookshop, um, by the end of the week, I think, Potties. But I would un- I would imagine that some of the bigger retailers would have it too. But it has sort of snuck into Australia. So hopefully you're starting a trend, Caro. Now tell us about Mamma Mia too. I'm dying to hear. Corrie, two words, see it. It is hysterical. It is brilliant. It's directed by the guy, um, Old Parker, who did the uh, Marigold Hotel. Richard Curtis wrote the script. I mean, I wouldn't say it's his greatest Oh, Richard ever. Curtis, Four Weddings and a Funeral. Richard Curtis got involved and it's basically a prequel. So um, a bit like The Godfather, you know, the, the second one goes back and this is about the Caro. Do not talk about The Godfather Part 2 in the same breath as Mamma Mia well, That's too. about the only thing the two have in common. Although Andy Garcia, who's also in this forthcoming movie about the book club, <laughs> is also – he he bobs he up. He was in Godfather Part 3. You cannot touch Godfather Part 2. In my, in my world, stop. I'm not comparing it. I'm just saying it's a prequel. Andy Garcia plays a character, spoiler alert, called Fernando. <laughs> it is so funny. It is as mum and I, mum and I went in. It was a miserable sort of grey morning. Meryl's in it. Well, oh. a bit, oh. a bit. Not, but but she in the prequel because it's all about how she ended up, you know, getting pregnant. And you know, we know that there are three men, and Piers Brosnan, Colin Frills, and that gorgeous Swedish actor Stella. Anyway, him, he, Colin Firth. Um, Colin Firth. Sorry, not Colin Frills. They're all in it again, and they're all fabulous, but they're all played by younger men in the prequel. And Lily James from um, Downton Abbey, and she was also in the um, Guernsey Literary Potato Peel Society. And isn't Cher in it? Speaking of Cher? Yeah, well, Cher makes one of the all-time great entrances, and, you know, she's made a few. She does totter around a bit in her um, flared jeans with the um, flower power sort of stickers, um, patches on them. She is brilliant. All of the people, all of the cast is brilliant. They reprise Julie Walters is so back in it again. So we go back to when the Meryl Streep character decided to stay on the island. We go back as to a child, as a twenty-something, when she's graduating from Oxford. Spoiler Which alert! Actually, dare I when say. I kiss the teacher, one of the more ridiculous Abba songs. The the staging of the songs and the choreography of anything is better. There's a whole lot of new Abba songs. You thought they ran out in the first one, they haven't. Although 
a couple of the all-time greats like Dancing Queen get another they'd get another crack at those. The Greek island is beautiful. The early scenes in Oxford and Paris are amazing. I just want to see the segue when she turns to Andy Garcia and says, "Can you hear the drums, Fernando?" It is <laughs> so funny. It, they ham it up. That's why it's brilliant. This is a secret to these films. Every star is prepared to send themselves up and sing songs badly, and yet they, they're all if they're all slightly better. If anything, Colin Firth. On lying among the bunting on this ama- amazing Greek sort of cruise ship, <laughs> lying backwards doing Dancing Queen is one of the oh, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. I'm seeing it again. It's great. Go and see it. Oh, I'm a bit sad. La Streep isn't in it more. But... Well, you know, at the end of the first one, how they do this sort of show tune, they all get they all put on the Abigail. Yeah, yeah. That is, if anything, better. If anything, it's better than the first one. So, and, were you and Jewel dancing in the aisle? Oh. Singing, dancing. Oh, fun. Well, I sang for the rest of the day. My husband said to me, you are in such a good mood. You are in such a good mood. <laughs> but, Corrie, what will put me in a good mood is that you are finally going to give me your friend Andrea's I Fill It recipe. Exactly. So, Caro, as you recall, years ago we went to Lake's Entrance for a couple of days and one night my friend Andrea cooked this, presented this magnificent dish and I have been cooking it on and off, I wouldn't say every week, but I do I do bring it out a great deal. So the, I think the key to this, firstly, is the marinade and the second is the salad. So um, a piece of eye fillet, marinate it for two days. You put in tamari. Two side, days. Yep. Tamari, cider vinegar, one ch- red chilli chopped. So it, the amount of, what, of, of this is really up to how many people you're having. But for this piece of eye fillet, which I think there were eight of us, I did 500 mils of tamari, 250 mils of cider vinegar, one red chopped really, six cloves of garlic, and put them all in the whizzer and then lay your, your meat out in the dish and pour the marinade over and turn it every, you know, eight to ten hours um, and, uh, of course, seal it in the fridge. Now, before cooking, you remove the beef and you drain the marinade and you dry it with a cloth. That is actually quite important. Um, and then uh, for this next bit, you put six cloves of garlic, a quarter cup of seeded mustard, 150 mils of cider vinegar, salt and pepper, and 350 mils of olive oil in a whizzer and blend. Potties, Lots of ingredients. Well, this is, the, this is the dressing for the spinach salad. This dressing you could use for anything. And, of course, with any mayo, the more oil you put in, the thicker it can be. This is a killer rock star, and it lasts for a few days in the fridge. Um, so we'll have all this up on the um, on the um, the website or the podcast, so uh, the um, Facebook. So don't stress potties as I read this out. So then what you do is you mix spinach leaves, diced baby beetroot, which you've obviously um, cooked, and hot blanched zucchini for two minutes. Now you've diced the zucchini, you just blanch them so they're not completely um, soft. And when they are still hot, you toss everything together and pour the salad dressing over. <clears throat> this dressing sticks to it like glue. It is just beautiful. So you you put this around this, the space and you put the eye fillet in the middle and, and then you can make a pesto sauce, <clears throat> which adds to the green. It's As absolutely well. stunning. Yeah, so it's red, green, the beautiful meat. It is an absolute winner. And no carbs, which is... No carbs. But, Caro, this... As good as we approach <laughs> spring. Yes, yes, in our bikinis. 
Caro, <laughs> yes, can't wait for that. Caro, um, I just have to say that this, whatever you do with your I feel it, whether you do this recipe or do it, just keep in mind this um, this marinade. It's not dissimilar to that one that your sister Moggs gave us that we lived on for years with the soy sauce and, and the Worcestershire sauce. Correct. Yep, but just half and but half. just the cider vinegar just really gives it a kick. So that's my recipe for today. Now I understand that you're grumpy on dare I say the old topic, Jeff Kennett, but I want to know why. Well, Corey, you know Jeff Kennett can be occasionally hypocritical and very irritating and he's a good shouter. So when you shout loudly, often your point gets across and it doesn't really deserve to. But shall we, shall we hear him in yeah, discussion? Let's have you? a listen to Jeff Kennett on 3AW on Saturday. I also think whatever else you might wish to allude to... No, I'm, just, think, I'm well, asking I, about a report on, on the ta- footy show. Well, I don't like some of the things that you say on your show, I think they're inaccurate. I think there's some of the things that are said so elsewhere. So there was no, there was ever a conversation. But I think you'll find that at the end of the day, I think I don't know because I've, I've spoken to Cyril. A uh, wanted to return home. Well, that was I tried for about three minutes to get Jeff Kennett to comment on the fact that he had had a fallout with Cyril Rioli's wife, Shannon, and. What happened as a result of that falling out was that um, I, I later found out that at least one Hawthorne board member was very disappointed about a comment Jeff Kennett made. And I don't think Jeff Kennett was necessarily in the wrong. I think, according to what I've heard, Mrs Rioli made a crack about Jeff Kennett's appearance as a joke, something about his hair, and he made a crack about her jeans, which had um, tear, ripped, rips in them. You know how, you know... People yeah, wear yeah. ripped jeans as a fashion thing. And he said, well, look at your jeans with the rips in them. The Riolis were not happy. And there was a – people tried to join – link the fact that Kennett had insulted Mrs Rioli with the fact that Cyril finally cracked it and decided to retire. Now, I don't think that is what happened. But all I was trying to do was find out what happened. And you know when someone doesn't answer the question four times in a row, he ended up saying Cyril just didn't want to put his body on the line anymore after four premierships. It was very odd. But isn't it odd that you asked him in that in that grab there? You asked him about comments he made on the footy show, and he came immediately back to your show and yep. said, "I don't." You know, there well, are well he accused me of saying that, um, which kind of slammed Alistair, dunks the whole of Channel Nine, really. I know that Alistair Clarkson's um, contract that I'd said it was going to be done in a couple of weeks. I never said that. Mm. I never said it. But you know, when he said it enough times, I started to think, "Did I say it? Where did I say it?" Anyway, time to move on, Jeff. We don't want you as our president anymore. He makes me very grumpy. now. Six quick questions, Karen. My question to you does have a footy slant. Are the Gold Coast Suns on death row? Oh, Goodness gracious, I'd be. Hard. Thinking so. <laughs> well, there is a smell of Fitzroy about them at the moment. They will survive because the AFL has a TV deal that dictates there has to be nine games a weekend. And they have some good people now running that football club. But when two captains leave in a row and a third one in Stephen May is looking like leaving as well, you have to wonder about the viability of your football club. I've not seen anything like this in footy ever when oh, so many it's just, captains It is leave. just so tragic and so sad. I'm watching it with, um, you know, with heart in mouth, I have to say. Now, last week you were upset about Barnaby Joyce being given a gig at the Canberra Writers Festival. What was this week's festival atrocity? Oh, God, it's just one after another. I know we are in festival month in Australia. So the Brisbane Writers <laughs> Festival starts in September. It's only on for one weekend. But they've just uninvited Jermaine Greer, who has a new essay out on rape. And they've uninvited the former Labor Foreign Minister, Bob Carr, who has a new memoir out. Why? Uh, well, exactly. Louise Adler of MUP, who represents both authors, you can imagine she is totally up in arms. So 
the acting chief executive of the Brisbane Writers Festival, because I think they've been through three or four in the last year, Caro. Anne McLean has made um, a few defences of her decision, which just don't make sense. It's basically um, political correctness gone crackers. She said Bob Carr was unsuitable for the topic which he was supposed to speak on, what the world needs now. And she was concerned that he would just talk about his new book. I'm sorry, but Bob Carr is a seasoned performer. He would actually write an appropriate speech. He wouldn't just be plugging his book. And then for Jermaine Greer, um, she said that she just felt that Jermaine, they felt that Jermaine Greer was not appropriate anymore, um, that she didn't have important things to say and that she might divide the audience because she has, you know, as we know, political views. But the best thing, just before I finish, Jermaine Greer's quote to answer to this was, to be uninvited to what is possibly the dreariest literary festival in the world is a great relief. <laughs> Go her, I say. Now, Caro, Todd McKinney, um, he, he did an interview on Joy FM recently. I didn't hear it, but you did good or bad listening. Well, it, that wasn't really the point. The point was that it was incredibly inappropriate, and I think there's going to be big ructions at Joy FM this is as a result. when he revealed that it was he had a podcast an with his brother-in-law. It was a podcast where he basically outed his brother-in-law. Now, I don't think it is the job of Joy FM and their charter to be outing people on their podcasts, and I think that the people involved in that podcast are in a bit of trouble. And I think it's really unfortunate for the man involved, even though it was sort of fascinating to hear that Todd McKinney had actually gone out with this bloke who ended up marrying his sister. I mean, he said a few things. He said that he had no idea that there was going to be a baby involved when, in fact, he did. It, it was just an extraordinary thing to do. I once incurred the wrath of Todd McKinney on, on telephone when I wrote a story about a show that he was in um, because he had allegedly um, been um, been disruptive. And um, boy, did I get it down the end of the phone from him. He does um, get agitated about things and speaks off the cuff, I think, a bit too often. My turn, Corrie. What is your favourite winter flower? One word, Caro. Daphne. I bought one on Sunday at a market. They a have white just one. started coming out. And if you walk around the streets of Melbourne, you'll get a whiff of it. And I was in Ballarat on the weekend and Daphne grow like weeds up there, every garden. And they're all out. They can come out a couple that of That must mean before. it's a cold weather flower because there's nowhere colder in Australia. Yes, we had to dust the snowflakes off the Daphne. <laughs> I love Daphne. I love it too. And I bought, I bought a white one on the weekend. Oh, always plant one near, you, near your front door. It's just a winner. And Caro, my question to you is Angela Williamson. We talked about her last week. What's the latest? Well, Incredibly, as you said last week, he still wants to work again for Cricket Australia. Uh, the case is going ahead. There has been denials by politicians that you know they revealed her abortion to Cricket Australia. They say that nothing they said to Cricket Australia was not already on the record. Well, in fact, she had been putting stuff on social media, but under not under her real name. And certainly, there was no way I think they would have known, and this would would have come out had the. Tasmanian government member revealed this to Cricket Australia. I am staggered that she wants to work again for Tas for Cricket Australia in Tasmania, but the government say they had good relationships with her. I really, really hope she sticks fat. We'll keep. We'll and keep she watching. Does go that. back? Yeah, I think we'll keep watching that story. That's one for us because that would be the ultimate bravery, I reckon, to to go back and withstand the storm. Now, Corrie, you've got a crush. I do. And actually, there are lots and lots of crushes this week, Caro. For, we have a record number of American women who have put their hand up to run for public office in the November midterm elections. And they're not all Democrats. There is a significant rise in the number of Republican women. And so what this suggests to me that these women are politically engaged, they're politically energised by issues such as, you know, the Supreme Court threats to abortion laws and gun control, you know, school shootings, kids of illegal immigrants being separated from their 
their parents, a whole raft like threats to Obamacare, a raft of causes. So there's a record number of women. Um, more than 40% of the Democrat nominees for the US House of Reps so far are women. So stay tuned on that one. Roll on November. Which is why you would love Hope Never Dies, the mystery. <laughs> well, you know me, I'm obsessed. Involving Barack Obama and Joe talk. Biden because there's a lot of side quips, very, very simple one words about the stuff that's currently going on in America without actually mentioning I would the love president. to see one of their book, one of the series of this book, Kidnapping Donald Trump. <laughs> I've got a GLT for you. It involves underwear. and Oh, really? It, this is not a plug, I promise you. It is a shop that has been Potties, going... Put, you put, the, put your hands over the ears of children now. There is a shop in Malvern. I don't want to know about that G-string of yours There's again. a shop in Malvern called Nicole Longture. It is where I got... I reckon I got my first bra there, uh, which tells you how old it is. Too much information. It is... There is one, you know how, remember trying on bras and how miserable it was when you were a kid? It still and, is. You know, women with tape measures. And I don't actually put on a bra and go, oh, I'm loving this There experience. is one place I am happy for someone to come in and fit my bra and it's Nicole Lingerie. This is a shop run by a mother and daughter. The daughter's name is Nicole. She was a little, little tiny girl when this shop opened. It has got a wonderful selection of nighties, nightgowns, stockings, stocking socks, it's got – I'm not into Spanx, but they've got them and the best ones. They'll tell you the best thing to buy. They've got the best range of bras. Have they given the you free – un- no. they given you free, you know, no, but Corrie, foot mittens or something no, for this ad? No, you should – no, you shouldn't make fun of this. You, of all people, know the importance of the service industry. It is the reason you are not going to buy things online. There is some – this – this the, the mother of this mother-daughter pair, I don't know if I should embarrass her and name her, she will come in and say, darling, darling, no, 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 no. Get, and, and she's right. She's always right. She fits you. She gives you the right advice and you can't get it anywhere else. I reckon. There so are, Kevin in Geelong, next time Caro's, you know, hard-hitting questions at a press conference <laughs> down at Cardinia Park, I just want you to look and see if she's got her Spanx on or not. You, and you if really, she looks good, you can thank Nicole. If you want proper service, Okay, Nicole let's move it on now. Glenfrey Road near Dandenong Road. Corrie? Oh, potties, that's just, well, like, oh, the mental picture that we're leaving with today. But look, <laughs> thank you everyone for listening to our Curiously sexy episode forty nine of Don't Shoot the Messenger. I don't think me trying on bras is sexy. And we hope that you'll in, you'll join us for our Golden Jubilee episode next week when Caro's mum Julia will be joining us. Yay! Um, we love your messages. Um, thank you very much to the message that we received from James Ormond, who said, "Maybe I'm the exception that proves Corey's rule." A fifty two year old who uses both thumbs on the smartphone. I think that's really clever of you to do that because I can't do it. Please send us messages. We love hearing from you. So there's the Facebook page, there's the Corey, the Carol and Corey Instagram, uh, and of course um, all sorts of other areas that you can. And you, we love it if you do rate us because it helps other people to find us on iTunes and subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends to subscribe. And also, if you have a product like Nicole or a service or business that you think might align really well with our show, hello, Mr. Cobram. Um, and we've got such a fabulous band of supporters. They'll all love you too. Please contact Jane Neild, our producer, for details. Thank you, Miss Jane, for the beautiful flowers and for keeping us on track today. Thank you, Cara, for our lovely chat. Off you go to buy another pair of Spanx. And what do we say? Don't shoot the messenger. Don't shoot the messenger.